2023 is winding down fast. I can't believe we're just a few short weeks away from 2024, which is like a year from science fiction movies or books, a far distant future. But hey, I guess the future's now. I'm Jessica Marshall, and we are here with another episode of The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. This month was newsworthy for a wide variety of reasons. I'll point you toward timesunion.com to read more about that, but we are going to focus on one particular story at the top of the show here, and that is the ousting from Congress of former New York Representative George Santos. He was only the sixth in history to get the boot. He's now facing more than a dozen charges of financial crimes, including alleged wire fraud, identity theft, and campaign finance violations. He was in court this week in Long Island, where prosecutors say a plea deal may be in the works. The former Congress member was the topic of conversation last week at our Hearst Media Center. Times Union editor Casey Seiler hosted a conversation with author and former Newsday columnist Mark Chisano about his book, The Fabulist, the lying, hustling, grifting, stealing, and very American legend of George Santos. It was a fascinating conversation, and we're going to play a portion of it for you right now. I, I do note that in The Fabulist, you, you pay very close attention to the kind of political ecosystem of Long Island, which is so unique, and you pay very close attention to Santos's victims, which are both mm-hmm. significant elements of Robert Caro's playbook. Um, so I would just ask you to kind of comment on, on how you kind of structured the telling of this and why both of those things were important elements in the telling of this story. Absolutely. Um, you know, I um, once called Robert Caro uh, who no longer works at Newsday, um, but he, uh, it was for a story about, it was during COVID, it was when the beaches were closed, and I had this idea that I was going to try to do a story about what that meant, like that we were closing the beaches, was this sort of unfair, and I was thinking about Caro's book, obviously, and I called a couple numbers for him, and then finally I found one that was like just a listed number at a house, um, and he picks up and he's like, who is this? Like, how did you find this number? And I got like four seconds of a quote from him. I was like, I got it. Bam. All right. Um, so, but no, he's a great, he's a great uh, writer and biographer. Um, and I was thinking um, about, you know, a couple of things that he does. He focuses on the victims for sure, which I think is kind of one piece of the Santos story that is easy to forget, right? He's hilarious. Um, he's crazy. He's now not, no longer a member of Congress. But he has left this trail of victims behind him, right? Um, not quite like Moses in the Cross Bronx Expressway, but only because he didn't have enough power, right? Um, he has this long trail of financial victims that were close to him often. Um, and that's what kind of struck me early on. You know, kind of, we all thought we sort of knew the Santos story, I think, from, from pretty quickly um, after the Times' was great piece. Um, and then more reporters you know, kept digging in and finding more. Um, And then I started calling around even more, and just more stuff just kept bubbling to the surface, Um, especially about his family. He'd been stealing from his aunt, who is this woman uh, who, you know, immigrated from Brazil, worked very hard, doted on him as a kid, used to buy him sweets and clothes, steals thousands of dollars from her. You know, it's just like, it's unbelievable. A grandmother who, I went to Brazil for a month to report on the book, 
grandmother's no longer alive, but I found her, uh, the doorman at the building that she used to live. Um, and the doorman told me that this was a woman who went to church every day, you know, and I went into the church where, where she would go to services um, every day. Santa stole hundreds of dollars from her too. You know, it was just everybody, everyone he, whose path he crosses. So I thought that was an important part of the story. I also think that where he comes from is a very important part too, because he's really shaped by, by New York, by Queens, um, by Brazil and Long Island. And so I did want to kind of have that in here for it to be, because I don't think that Santos himself, yeah, he didn't spring from nowhere. He was kind of created by these places. So I did think that was an important part of the story. You note that his story is, um, just to sort of follow up on that, a very New York City Mm. type of tale, the idea that the city, especially for people who are coming up from kind of meaner economic circumstances, is one in which you do hustle, you do fake it, and if you do that long enough, you will become a magnet for money and for the attention that, that you crave. It works, right? It's not, uh, he's not the first New York City hustler to, you know, sort of brave this path. Um, I found it so interesting, you know, the things that he would lie about, right? So Horace Mann, it's this school, it's this very sort of fancy private school in New York City. Um, And there are some elements of Santos's story that he backtracked on. He said, sure, you're right, I didn't go to college. You know, I didn't go to Baruch, I didn't play volleyball. A couple other things he sort of allowed that he lied on. Horace Mann, he continues to sort of claim, like, yes, I did go to Horace Mann for six months and, you know, one year, um, and their records are wrong. And so this presents a challenge for any journalist, right? Because we want, we, we want to sort of check things with our sources and we want to, to get the truth, right? So if someone's telling us, like, no, actually, I really am not lying about this. This is real. You go and check it out. And so, so I did. I, you know, I, I got uh, a bunch of yearbooks from, the, from Horace Mann, and I turned every single page in the Caro way. This is like less serious than Caro. I'm turning Horace Mann yearbooks. He's turning like, you know, documents of, of import. But, you know, what are we going to do? It's 2023. Um, but, uh, but, you know, he, so, so I'm looking through all his yearbook pages. He's not there. Finally, um, literally, it was like the 10th to last page I turned. I find a Gabriela Santos who's in the class literally the year that he, that Santos doubles down and claims he was there. And, um, and so I call her. Hilariously, she was an actual um, J.P. Morgan, uh, like, uh, employee. She actually went to, um, now I'm forgetting which college it was, but, um, but like one of, the, one of the sort of colleges that, she, that he claimed to go to. So I, I'm like, oh my God, did I find like a cousin or something? Um, but it's not, she has no relation to him. And I say to her, would you have remembered a guy from Brazil, you know, with Brazilian background with your exact last name? And she's like, yeah, it's a pretty white school, you know, (laughs) definitely. Um, So anyway, these are the lengths you go. Um, But it's interesting that he chose Horace Mann because it is this very white, very, um, very ritzy, very expensive school. Um, But he even when he was unmasked, he continued sort of having this chip on his shoulder and wanting to pretend that he'd been to these places that he hadn't. You mentioned the Baruch volleyball claim. As you note, that is such an easily debunked claim of of volleyball. Did I say basketball? Volleyball is, um, you know, whether it's volleyball or basketball, people go to those matches. You know, they are 
recorded. There are, you know, team rosters and all that stuff. And it, which kind of begs the question that pertains to a, a lot of these things. Do you think that he believed in some way that he had convinced himself that if if it wasn't true, it should have been true. <laughs> I deserve to be on the Bruce Bottle yeah. team. Yeah. I think there's something to that. You know, there I I sort of developed like almost a taxonomy of the Santos lies after doing this for so for too long. Um, but one of the one of the types of lying that he does, I think, is that he um, he's a riffer. You know, so if you go back to that original interview where he mentions the volleyball thing. It's with, um, it's a radio interview and it's two hosts who, I may be mangling this slightly, but basically their, um, their daughters um, go to schools that, San- that including Baruch, um, and play two sports that Santos claimed to have played, volleyball and tennis. So they mention this, the hosts do, and Santos is like, oh yeah, totally, I play that as well. Um, and, and so like he is kind of, He's trying to, you know, establish a commonality between these radio hosts, right? And then he just takes it too far. You know, he like goes over the top with a specific story. And it's sort of, it's a, it's a sort of catch-22 because he's a good liar because he's a specific liar, right? Like that's what he, that's why his lies are interesting and memorable. And that's why people, you know, were sort of, you know, thought he was impressive, right? Because he had specific things that he pointed to in his past. Of course, that those specific, those specificities are easier to debunk. You, um, I think you mentioned at another point that I think it's in a in a debate with Zimmerman where they talk. He talks about you know Christmas around the household, and then Santos immediately tries to one up among sweat sweatpits. Yes, yeah, sweatpits oh, yeah, and Hagen does. I think yes. yeah, that, that that was their family tradition. And Zimmerman, you could see it in the video. Zimmerman's just like. <laughs> That's what I just said, you know. Um, yeah, and they're very different people. <laughs> yeah. But but it is. It's that kind of. It's Zelig comes mm-hmm. up a lot that um, as as in you know Woody Allen Zelig, you've got a character who is trying trying to fit in, trying to make himself into that which he feel he feels will be accepted and celebrated. I think that's totally right. Um, you know, and by the way, with the volleyball, another piece of that, another taxonomy of stealing of the stories is, of the lying is that he sometimes will steal someone's story. So there was a, a, a former boss of his, this guy Pablo Oliveira, who was in fact a Baruch volleyball star, um, also a Brazilian um, a man of Brazilian, you know, uh, background, and uh, and so Santos clearly knew this guy and seems to have kind of borrowed his story and then makes it his own. And, and so then part of that taxonomy, I think, is, like you said, does Santos actually believe these lies um, when he's, once he's stolen them, once he's made them his own? And I talked to one, um, one memorable uh, person who you know, had an interaction with Santos who totally thought that he believed it. And the interaction was that this guy is uh, another politician, a sort of younger Queens politician. And so Santos, uh, you know, is talking to him and says, you know, how old are you again? And this politician says, whatever, something in his 20s. And Santos goes, ah, yes. He doesn't, like, skip a beat. He's like, oh, I remember when I was your age, like, I'd made my first million already. <laughs> and there's just something that the, the guy didn't exactly know how to describe it, but I totally got what he was trying to tell me, that 
clearly Santos believed it. You know, there was no hesitation. There was no, like, flitting of the eyes or something. There was no backtracking. It was just, this is his reality. So I think sometimes he must believe these lies. For more on Casey's conversation with author Mark Chisano, head over to timesunion.com. While you're at it, check out more on any of the issues that we've discussed on this podcast. Be sure to catch us on social media as well. We're going to take a short break right now, but when we come back, we will discuss a controversial policy at the Crossgates Mall Lululemon store. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Marshall. If you have ever been to the mall with a young child, or even if you've observed someone toting a small child around the mall, you'll definitely have some thoughts about our next segment. Christy Gustafson Barletti joins me now to talk about some controversy over an alleged store policy at the Crossgates Mall Lululemon. So Lululemon is no stranger to controversy. Uh, There have been a couple of things over the last couple of years that have sort of launched it into the headlines for all the wrong reasons. You know, the whole thigh gap thing, um, you know, accusations of of racism toward employees. There was that whole thing in Buffalo, too, with the wide right. Like, it's not knew that Lululemon would be stirring up a controversy. And I think you have stumbled upon what might be the latest controversy at Lululemon. So I'm going to start with that and let you just tell us what happened uh, in early December that has led you to this. Yes. Yeah, so I was in Lululemon um, in Crossgates Mall. I've been there many, many times with my children. But this time I was told that me and my daughter, who's nine, could not go in the dressing room together. And I thought, well, that's strange. And they said, well, because it's a one person per dressing room policy. I'm not rolling with my sister or my mother or my friend or my husband or anybody else, but it's my child. And she looked behind me and looked at my child and confirmed that my child was not a baby because babies can go in. And obviously my child's not a baby. And so she said, nope, nope, you can't. Either she goes in and you stay out or or you go in and she stays out. So this just seemed crazy to me. So there were two staffers there. I asked them both. I said, so same thing if I was with a four, five, six-year-old, three-year-old. Yes, no matter what, that person stays out, you go in. So I said, well, who's responsible for the children? Are are you the staff? And she said, well, no, as if it was the most outrageous question I could have asked. There wasn't really an answer on who's responsible for the children, but there was an answer on those children are not going in the dressing room. Okay, so you and I are both the parents of children who should not be left alone in a mall without supervision. Um, That is kind of ridiculous, right? Like, okay, you can't have your, let's say you have like um, a six-year-old with you. He would tear the place, my son would tear the place apart like the Tasmanian devil. Like, and then I would be worried too about somebody snatching them or something happening. Like, 
that just seems like it's inviting a lot of trouble for for the store. Well, exactly. Right. So there's mannequins. And I feel like all you need is like a kid pulling an arm off or something off a mannequin and then getting hit in the head by the arm. But regardless, dismantling the display, pulling on the other clothes, walking around, you know, they're always folding things nicely and just laying the bags out nicely. Well, kids just love, as you and I both know, love to destroy things that look nice. So <laughs> kids are messing up, messing up things. Uh, kids have sticky hands and messy faces and they're touching the clothes. Not that that can't happen if the parents are there, but if a parent is there, they're watching it. So it's not fair to the child because I think the child could be scared to be left out in the store alone. Even on the other side of a door, it's still out on their own. So there's that. I don't think it's fair to the staff because at the end of the day, the staff may say they're not responsible and technically they're not. But I would think any logical person, if the child takes off from the store out to the mall, that person's going to try to stop the child, you would think, if they notice it. So it's not fair to the staff. And it's also not fair to the other customers who should be able to shop in relative peace. This all seems like it might be at odds with one of its core demographics. I mean, moms who wear athleisure. All of my mom friends wear athleisure, right? So whether that's Lululemon, Athleta, one of the brands at Dick's Sporting Goods, pretty much every mom I know loves athleisure wear, especially with work from home and things like that. So it would seem, and pretty much most of my friends like Lululemon. So I would say that, yes, a huge part of their demographic, yeah, sure, there are 18-year-olds in their demographic and there are 58-year-olds in their demographic. I think generally speaking, it's probably women in their 30s and 40s, right? Because it's a little bit more expensive, so you have to be a little established and have been working a bit to be able to afford it. But it's also trendy. So, you know, moms who want to be trendy go toward that. And it's colorful. The reason I like it is it's it's colorful clothing that's made pretty well. Yes. And as uh, you know, the the sport that I'm engaged in, which I've mentioned many times on this podcast, the the leggings are particularly perfect for practicing figure skating. And I have been on teams before where the required uniform has been Lululemon. So it's always been kind of like something that I have gone to, not necessarily for the label, but because it produces a good product. Um, but back to the demographics, right? Like it seems like this business decision, uh, whatever you want to call it, is alienating parents. And it's not just an issue with women either, because Lululemon, you know, has stuff for men as well. So conceivably, a dad could go into the store with their kid, too. Like, and then if they can't bring their kid in the dressing room, then they can't really shop there, right? Or they, oh. they're less likely to shop there. I will say I love Lululemon. I track it down sometimes, like the outlet stores and things like that. My kids are typically with me. I've never not been able to bring them into the dressing room. And I personally would not buy from a store like Lululemon without trying the clothes on because like most retailers these days and designers, the sizes range. I could fit into an eight in one item or even a six in one item and a 12 in another item. So mm -hmm. I can't just look at the rack, say, okay, I'm going to grab that in an eight and walk out the door. It's like, no, I'm going to try it on before I spend whatever, $99 on a pair of leggings, $119. I'm going to try it on because I'm not going to spend my money without trying something on. Okay, maybe you can return it, but why do I want to have to go back and do that? If you aren't going to let me in the dressing room with my child, well, then I'm not going to buy product because I'm definitely going to try it on. You reached out to Lululemon, as one should, you know, when we are looking into something like this, and they responded. What did they say? They did. So they apologized immediately. They said this should not have happened. Um, we are sorry. This is not the experience we intended. But I will actually tell you their exact statement. 
At Lululemon, ensuring our guests feel safe and have a positive experience in our stores is our top priority. We do not have a policy restricting children from accompanying parents into fitting rooms. We apologize for the inconvenience this experience caused and are taking steps to ensure we continue to provide a welcoming and positive shopping experience for all guests. Hmm. There was no saying, oh, that didn't happen. Well, because interestingly, I had posted about it to social media with a with a little ludicrous or logical. This is what happened. What do you think? And hmm. I think there was 180 comments and 179.5 of those comments was that's ridiculous. Even people who said, I'm not a parent and I know that's ridiculous or I don't shop there and I think it's ridiculous. Everyone recognized it was ridiculous. But what was interesting was there was one of my readers who had the same thing happen to her in that store this summer in July. So it's been going on for some time now. It's been going on. They told me just a couple of months when I asked about it because I thought, oh, I was just with my kids in the Lululemon in Maine this summer and they were in the dressing room with me. So I asked her, she said a couple of months This woman shared the letter she had written to corporate and the correspondence that happened at the time. So the interesting thing was she shared it in July, right, with the company, and it didn't change. That's interesting. And I suppose if it had been a company-wide policy, right, if Lululemon hadn't written you and told you that this explicitly wasn't a company policy, that we would have heard about this happening elsewhere, right? I'm sure it would have popped up. Oh, it would have popped up. I don't know why any store would want the liability of your kids out roaming around loose in a store while you're in the dressing room. It just seems because also something's going wrong and you have no pants on. What are you supposed to do? <laughs> Come flying out the door and chasing your kid through cross gates, pantsless? Like that's not going to work. The thing that we have to watch out for now is if the store, when confronted with the fact that their corporate does not have this policy, if they change their tune. Well, yes. And I was told, you know, that the because you know how corporate works. There's different levels there. It's not just like one person calls another person and things change, right? There's there's a whole process and procedure. So I'm sure it's like it has to go to the training team or whatever. Then they talk to the managers Then the managers talk to the staff. So it's not like I was told no yesterday and today every all, all is good and you can bring 12 kids in the dressing room with you. Which but, I have no intention of doing. If I am going to Lululemon, you know, my first choice isn't to bring my six-year-old. My first choice would be to leave my six-year-old with a babysitter or my spouse or something, you know, because I would like the leisure of trying something on. Because that's not even an easy try on. Like no. anyone who's tried on a pair of Lululemon leggings knows you got to shake your body into those things. There's a lot of pulling and grabbing. It's not just like pulling a sweater over your head where you're like, okay, on, off, and we're done. Yeah. It's like the shoes come off. The socks might have to come off. You've got to pull it up. It's it's like, I don't want any, ideally, I don't want anyone in the dressing room, but I need to have my children there because they're my responsibility, not your responsibility. And I'm also going to just be really haphazard and quick if you make my kids stand outside the dressing room and I'm just looking to make sure their feet are still there rather than paying attention and making a a smart buying decision. And I go back to their stuff is not inexpensive. So it's like you're not just buying there haphazardly. You're making decisions based on, okay, yes, this is worth it. This is an investment piece. And yes, I want to go with it. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler and Christy Gustafson-Barletti for contributing to this episode.